This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Hi, this is Taylor Stevens, New York Times bestselling an award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. Taylor, do you have ever have any problems? That may, this is probably something that comes with aging, and you haven't experienced this at all yet, and your mind works completely differently than mine does, but I know that when I hit my early 50s, which is still so far in advance for you, <laughs> I, I found myself reaching a little bit further for words and in into my 60s it's like i i need a i need a shovel or something to to reach out and grab the words and pull them back uh, that ever yeah, happened that to is, you it's like my whole life steve <laughs> <laughs> because i don't think in words <clears throat> so i have to as we've discussed multiple times for all you listeners out there uh i have to convert thoughts ideas concepts into words which I had the strangest thing happen to me the other day is I, I tried to explain to Steve before we started recording and I sound like a crazy person, but yes. this is literally what happened. <laughs> I was in the middle of working on what this project is, my work in progress, fully focused and something in what I was writing triggered another thought as my lightning storm inside my head is wont to do. And it was for a podcast idea, which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, and the, it's something that I've thought about multiple times when I try, when I've in my head, <laughs> like trying to structure the idea in a logical, coherent way I I'm always go back to, well, where does it actually start? And so the, the, it became a discussion or imaginary discussion with myself over what actually was the inciting incident for this story. And so I've talked about inciting incidents so many times. I've always conceptualized the idea for this podcast topic through the lens of inciting incident. And so when I went to jot down the notes to remind myself that this is what I wanted to record this week, all I needed were those two words, inciting incident, and I, I would have remembered everything. But I couldn't remember those words. <clears throat> I knew what they represented. The, the whole thing was there as this sense of awareness, knowledge, understanding, concept, which is how I process thought, but I couldn't bring the words themselves to the surface. So I'm sitting there with pen in hand, staring at this piece of paper where I jot my notes, and I'm like, I, 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 I don't know what to write here. I can't conjure up these words that represent this thing. And I'm racking my brain, racking my brain. And the closest I could get myself to was instigating event. 
So I knew it was something that started something off. And I knew that. So the first word was to to begin it, to launch it. And the second word was the thing. Right. And I knew this, but I couldn't come up with those words. And so sometimes when I'm struggling to bring the word that represents the concept to the surface and I know I know it, it's not like, oh, I wonder if there's a word for that. Like, I know I know this word. I'll start to like try and form the word in my thoughts, almost as if my mouth is moving it. And eventually, if I do that, it's like I can almost touch it. I can almost touch it. I can feel it. It's almost there. And and then it will break through the surface. And I'm like, yeah, that's what it is. And I've got it. But this time it wasn't happening. Like I kept trying to touch it and I, I couldn't even couldn't even feel where I was supposed to touch. And so I started like mouthing it, getting more and more frustrating as I go, like, and in my head, literally someone who does not typically hear sound in terms of sentences or whatever, I do not have a running dialogue in my head. This is what I hear. And I'm like, how, how I'm not even making those sounds on purpose, but every time I would try and, and articulate or, or, or make my mouth move or my brain connect to my mouth in a way that would form this untouchable thing, I would get garble, literal, audible garble. And I was like, okay, that is a story for the ages. (laughs) And uh, why garble and not words? But anyway, I never did uh, actually pull that word to the surface. I, I had to go look through the list of all the topics we've ever t- talked about, like <laughs> the podcast queue, uh, like from zero to wherever we're at now, and just started scrolling through the subjects and I find like inciting incident. Okay, that's what it's called. <laughs> wrote it down. So, <laughs> yes, Steve, oh, I do struggle. You do, it, to you do find occasionally. Work. Yes, all right. Because <laughs> I know for some of us, we listen to you and you speak so fluently that it's it, in many instances, it's like you've, you've given this a lot of thought and I'll ask you a question that I've, I've not prepared you for, you're not expecting, and you'll give a five minute answer without missing a beat. And it, so it, it's, I find it interesting that you also occasionally have a little trouble finding words and that you've got the reverse tape recorder in your brain that <laughs> yeah. plays everything backwards. <laughs> that's that's what really it sounds what it sounded like. like. Yeah. And I think for, I think really what's going on when you'll throw a question at me and it quote unquote sounds articulate is just because my brain is running ahead of my mouth. And so it's finding all the things before they actually get spoken. So you're not hearing all the delete, delete, (laughs) wait, what? Yeah. Oh no. Uh, Okay. And then reverse. And finally the words come out. That's the best I can do for um, explaining it. But well, that would not be that would not be good for podcasts if we had the wait no wait uh, I uh, no so it's good that uh, we just get the the complete comprehensive responses. I was listening to the beginning of one of these podcasts the other day to for whatever reason I don't remember, and I know it was a day like I, I clearly remember on that particular day I was having a hard time pulling out from whatever I was doing and switching into the topic that we were going to discuss, I 
<laughs> was a constant bundle of um 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 I wanted to reach through the headphones and smack myself. And that was just one. I don't know how much it shows up on other ones. And so now I'm like, okay, super conscious of this. And I caught myself the last recording that we did. I said it at least a few times that I caught myself doing it. And now I'm just like, okay, this has got to stop. I can't do this. I, I've got to stop with that type. I, it's okay to pause. Just don't fill the pause with an um. So, yeah, anyway. I listened to one podcast and... It's it's sort of an intellectual discussion. It's it's typically an intellectual discussion between the host and the guest. And one of the features of this podcast is they don't edit anything uh, during the conversation. So one person will ask the other person a question, and there might be ten seconds of silence. And I I think did you know have my headsets shut off <laughs> did i did i accidentally reach into my pocket while i'm walking and turn the podcast off and then all of a sudden they're going again and um that's well, we don't edit those out either so <laughs> <laughs> we, 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 we very have seldom long... have pauses of that length usually the pauses that we have of that length are when i've muted myself because there's noise in the background and you ask me a question <laughs> and i'm just talking away and all of a sudden i hear you say are you muted again that does happen. <laughs> and we do cut those out. All right. We do have a title, or we do have a topic today, and it it's what you were thinking of when you couldn't come up with the term inciting incident. Yes. We're not going to talk about inciting incidents today, but it is very topical because when I was, I forget exactly how it happened. I was on the Facebook group about a month or so ago. And I was answering a point. I forget. I even forget which one. I've slept since then. But in all of that came the, the, the realization to me that there is something I talk about quite often whenever I do events and such, which is how I ended up writing at all. And that whenever I tell the story, um, um, I did it. Whenever I tell the story in real life, it's never chronological <laughs> because I'll start with the, what seems to be the inciting incident <laughs> that prompted me to start writing. And then there's a because, and then I got to go back in time, which leads to another because, <laughs> and I go back further in time. And it's the story that jumps all the way around of one thing leads to another through the decades that got me to where I finished, you know, started writing the informationist. And I realized that a, I've never told the story chronologically and B, I don't think I've ever fully told the story on this podcast. So what I wanted to do here was tell you the story <laughs> of all the many things that you'd only realize in hindsight how they had an impact on your life that caused you to act the way that you did in later years. I want to tell that story not just for this podcast, but so that anyone, like, I'll probably link it to the Facebook group, to the Patreon page, and eventually add it to an email because it's so much harder for me to try and write it as a, in words. I, and if I can just tell the story, maybe I'll be able to get it chronological 
walk you through it and tell you how I actually ended up being a writer in terms of my own life choices and what compelled me to do what I did and not necessarily the luck or what was going on in publishing at the time or whatever, which is a whole other thing. So that's where inciting incident comes into this, because as I keep going back further and further in time, I'm like, is that the inciting incident? Is that the inciting incident? And even what I've pinpointed as the inciting incident, what turned me into a writer, it still has a little bit of backstory. But that's where I'm going to start. This may get a little longer than our typical 20 or 30 minutes. I don't know, because we already spent so much time talking about talking and thinking and words. But anyway, here goes. In my opinion, (laughs) the inciting incident that led to where I am now happened when I was 12 years old. Now, at that time, in the cult's history, we were just moving into an era that they called the combo era. And what combos were is when big, huge groups of people, lots of families, whatever, would all start living together in massive homes, or we called them homes, but buildings. So this particular combo was the first combo that existed in Japan. And Japan is not known for large housing. So this was actually a hotel that we had converted into a place where we all lived. And I think at the time there was like a hundred and something other people living there. And at that time in the cult's history, I as a 12 year old was considered an adult, but not really. I mean, yes, but the first generation of adults that actually chose to join the movement, join the cult, they never really wanted to fully cede their position of who's more important than who. So they were always top tier adults. And even though in name, as a 12 year old, I was considered an adult, I was not, I was given the responsibility of an adult, but not the authority. I could get in trouble like an adult, but still needed supervision. It was this weird situation. And um, um, it, uh, it continued like that. No matter how old I got, they kept pulling that adulthood back a couple more years because you weren't ever going to be tier one. (laughs) You're still a kid, even if you were 20. Um, So anyway, at that time I had been in Japan, maybe I'm going to guess about six, six to eight months. Memories really get vague after a while. I had come directly with my family from the United States. And at that time, in the year that led up before leaving the United States to Japan, I had spent time in public school. So I never finished sixth grade, but I was in sixth grade when I exited the public school system for good. And it was a very small school out in rural California. And they had a small library. And I hated recess in terms of going out and playing out on the recess yard. I never learned because I never stayed in any one place long enough to develop 
friendships or whatever. I never stayed in any one place to go to one school long enough to develop friendships or whatever. I never learned the rules of things like tetherball or the things that, that girls did out on, the, out on the recess yard. So I'd spend all my time in the library. I did not have access to books at home. Uh, I never had, like at that time in the United States, there, they weren't, the coal members were not cohesive. They were all a bunch of little families living in their own, either little houses or whatever. And they would sort of get together and call them fellowships. And it was a great time to be a kid in the cult then at that, because there's a lot of freedom and whatever. So that's how I ended up attending public school and spent a lot of time in the libraries because I didn't have, didn't know how to make friends. And I blew through the entire Nancy Drew, uh, Trixie Belden and Hardy Boys series, just reading two, three books a week, which, you know, as an 11 and 12 year old was a lot. And that was the situation I was in more or less before we uprooted. There was a, a gap of a few months where they, I was pulled out of school and then we left for Japan. And then in Japan, at 12, as these combos started to form, I was, I don't want to say I was taken away from my parents because that makes it sound like I was clinging to their ankles going, no, don't leave me. I was actually quite happy to leave because there were very few uh, others, peers my age in the cult at that time anywhere. And in Japan, all of them we're in this one combo. So to be able to go to that combo and leave my parents meant that I could be around a handful of others that were my own age. That So to me, it was not punishment to be away from my family, but what it did inadvertently, and I didn't, I could never know this at the time, was it kind of, that's what began to sever the family bond uh, between me and my parents. It's like, we weren't really a family unit anymore. The rest of my siblings, yes, but not me. So I'm in this combo and there is a particular person who is responsible for the quote unquote teens of which I was one. And that was my peer. We were the oldest. I was one of the first 200 born into this cult. So the, even those that were in this combo that were older than me, they weren't necessarily born into the cult. Some of them, yes, but most, no. So they'd been brought in as like two-year-olds or three-year-olds or whatever when their parents joined. So that's my peer group. And it starts to dawn on this person who's responsible for us that these little mini adults who are responsible for other children or for running the, you know, for being the manual labor inside this combo are very illiterate. <laughs> that is where I learned that the word really has two L's and, um, a few other little things, you know, and he realized that we're not getting any schooling. So he decides, or he's instructed to, I really don't know the behind the scenes workings of this. He's going to make sure the teens get some form of education, which lasted all of about maybe a month. And then that was the end of that, whatever his efforts were. But his efforts at that time were write a story. Hmm. And I am sure that at some point along the way, in some of the schools that I went to, I must have had to write stories, must have, but I don't remember them. I don't remember doing it. This story, I remember, because 
that was all I had to, as entertainment. So in my free time, in the evenings or whatever, I was working on this story. And because I'd already had sort of a, a, a little bit of a library in my head of adventure stories and whatnot, that's what I set out to write was an adventure. And I do not remember the name. I do not remember the content. I do not remember anything about it more than I got teased for it tremendously. Like the, that guy called me, you know, sort of Taylor Anna Jones, you know, um, because of the content of this story. But that is the inciting incident to me because that is what put storytelling creating alternate worlds into my head. I did, I wrote that story there and then that was it. Now, key to note here is I was encouraged to do it. There were no limitations on content and I was praised for the effect afterwards. And this is really important because it can come into the story later. And the reason why that matters is because early on, in the cult's history, the leader, who was referred to as Mo, Moses David, like Moses leading his children out of the land of Egypt, it's really hard. It just, you get into all this terminology and the iconology that comes with it, and it just we could go on for hours. But he, he communicated with his cult following through the written word. Very, very few people ever met him in real life. He was recluse. He was paranoid. His location was always a secret. And he was on the run because he had governments had wanted to arrest him. And so how he communicated with his people was through writing. And that's what kept us all on the same page. You could be in a home in Brazil and fly to a home in Japan and you're both reading the same cult material at the same time. And so the, the hive mind was uniform because the cult leader's dictives went to everybody at the same time. So way back at the very, very beginning, he had written this Mo letter, which is what they were called, um, about, it was titled The Uneager Beaver. And it was a result of someone inside the cult movement at that time had dared, God help them, to write their own, quote unquote, children's story. Okay, no. So the Mo letter was titled Eager Beaver. The story that they had titled was The Uneager Beaver. And it was basically, I don't even know what it was. I never had a chance to read it, never saw it. But the cult leader got his hands on it and flipped his lid because he was the voice of God. Only his writings were worthy to be read. And it this was just childish foolishness. And anybody who was entertaining childish foolishness to allow this made-up story type stuff into their life was letting the devil into their lives. So from the very beginning, there was this understanding that you don't write stories. Only things that were based on the Bible were permissible, and even then, only when they came from the cult leader. So here I was as a 12-year-old 
encouraged to write, no uh, constraints on content, and praised for it. Little bit contradictory to what the understanding was, but this guy was my the equivalent of my boss. Like he was in charge of me and he said it was okay. And you can imagine how 12, then later 13 year old might be just a little confused about how this whole thing worked. Welcome to the world of the cult where it was just so freaking fickle. You never knew from one day to the next. And it just depended on how somebody decided to enforce the rules at that particular time. So from there, moved, 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 ended up in a small, much smaller home with just my family. I was back with my family again and a couple other families. And we spent so much of our time in the back of vans being transported from place to place, us kids, the young young generation, so that we could stand out on the street and pass out literature and beg for donations. And we were the fun, the money-making machine in the cult because the cult did not believe in gainful employment. You were working for devil. You were working for mammon. So we were separated from that, but we still needed money to live, so we would beg for donations. And you can't just put 10 little white kids out on a street corner in the middle of Japan and expect people not to notice. So we didn't really go to the same place over and over again. And so to get to wherever our begging destination was usually required a lot of driving. And we were a lot of kids shoved into the back of the van for time, a lot of time with nothing to do. So I started making up stories and sort of became the de facto entertainment and we just in a oral in the oral tradition of storytelling and the longer this went on the more we'd go back and you know with my little gang of younger kids or you know my brothers my sisters whatever and we'd go back and revisit it and further develop it and you know these stories just kind of developed uh, but, you know, the idea of writing them down never occurred to me at that time because I didn't really have a lot of time to just sit and write or where I wasn't doing something. I mean, we were the workforce. We were busy most of the time. From the time we got up to the time we went to bed, there was something for us to do. Idle minds were the devil's workshop and all that. So it wasn't until I was about 14 and I ended up in this another situation, just move, 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 move. Another situation where it was, well, it was one of the most miserable situations I'd found myself in to date, which is saying something in that environment. And I did have a lot of time on my hands. It was a very strange home that had leadership that were never present and people were just sort of existing in it. And at that point, for entertainment, I started writing these stories down for myself. Um, and and I think I had about three of them going at the same time. And just gradually, word began to spread among my friends, my peers. I, I took these little notebooks with me wherever I moved, and I moved a lot. And I would, anytime I had free time, anytime I wasn't, obligated to be somewhere doing something, this is what I did to entertain myself, was write those stories and develop them. And 
then another big thing happened in the cult. As the teenagers started getting older, we started going through typical teenage things, and rebellion was one of those things. And in a structure that has no tolerance for dissent and just couldn't fathom why any teenager would act like a teenager when you are in the Lord's army, rebellion was treated as devil, devil possession. And I had gone through within all those moves and twists and turns, a rebellious phase. I was very hurt, very angry, not trying to justify it. It was totally justified, and then some. But so considering my quote-unquote rebellious phase, what it entailed, and what parents could only dream of their children being rebellious as, I was a dream child. But to the cult, not so much. So in this whole phase of teens becoming teens, demon possession became a very, very real concept in a very, very literal, tangible way. And I got singled out, like from the very top echelons of that, that 14-year-old there, I might have been 15 by this time, I don't remember exactly, is has the devil and needs an exorcism and needs to have this cast out. And one of the things that they used as evidence that I was demon-possessed was that I was writing stories that were not based on the Bible and were not based on our prophet's teaching, and therefore I was a witch. And having me maintain presence in the home was a literal gateway to allowing the devil to be inside that home. I was his portal. So then came the exorcism. <laughs> it's a whole story in itself, the whole, how, that, how that all went down. Uh, can, I, my... can I just jump in and ask a question here? I don't want to interrupt yes. your story. But uh, having read your friend's book, um, Lauren Howe? Huff, Huff. yes. I, I will never get that right. But leaving isn't the hardest part. She describes exorcism. In that book, and I don't want to get into detail, but is that similar to what you went through? I don't remember exactly what she wrote, so I'm afraid to say one way or the other. Like, I'd have to read it and then go, yes or no, or here's how mine differed. But if she's referring to what happened to the person that she refers to as Mimi, uh, it was somewhat same, same era, same concepts. I didn't get physically beat because I I saw I knew what was coming. Okay, <laughs> I was right. like trying to worm my way through it and and play the game so that I wouldn't get physically beat. But aside from that, other aspects of it were pretty spot on. So I um when that happened, when that exorcism, that whole thing went down. I mean, I got in so much trouble beyond that. Like I was not allowed. They did not trust me to be around anyone my own age. And actually, that's when I, right after that happened is when I met Lauren for the first time. Like I, she and I were living in the same home after that all went down. But she's a little bit younger than me, so they didn't consider her my peer. She wasn't. She's just one age group down, right? So it doesn't matter when you're in your forties. <laughs> it's a really big deal when you're fourteen. So. Uh, they, they, they shipped me off to be with, like, I had a minder who was 24 seven. If I said the wrong word, looked the wrong way, they were to beat the devil out of me. And I just really did not want that to happen. So I was just like, you're pristine, clean, 
saintly person who still managed to get in trouble for nothing all the time, but because they were that that was the whole goal of it was to beat me and break me down until I couldn't rebel anymore. But during that time, they also took away all my notebooks and burned them. So they told me, don't you dare ever write fiction again. And that was that. That was my introduction to the world of writing fiction. What really got me, though, was um, when I was maybe 20, 21, I, 21, 20, I, I don't I don't even remember. Around that time, I mean, the cult was just constantly going through their phases, their phases, their phases. And they had started this thing that they called spirit stories. So by this time, the cult leader was dead and his common-law wife had taken over. And I say this without animosity. She's dumb as doorknob. I mean, really, just really a dumb person. Just dumb. And at least the cult leader for every freaking thing that was wrong with him, he had a certain level of intelligence, a a certain level of charisma, a certain level of cult leader traits. This woman was just stupid and boring and plain. And so she sort of, in her way of trying to keep hold over the cult, they turned to this thing of prophecy where voices would, I say this with very, very heavy finger quotes, speak through them. So whatever came out of the mouths of their prophets was supposed to be the voice of the Lord, since she herself didn't have the charismatic gift of being a cult leader. She would did it this other way, and prophecy became the guiding principle of everything in the cult from that point on, which is a whole other story. But anyway, in, in that vein of things, they started basically creating their own fiction under the guise of it being, it wasn't them doing it, it was the spirits doing it. Like, it was coming from God. It wasn't, it wasn't really them making stuff up. It was God making stuff. I don't know. It just, it made sense in that twisted way of thinking. So at that time, since this was sort of the way things were going, I actually wrote and said, hey, I've grown up. Things have changed. You guys are doing these stories. Can I write? Can I, can I do stories again? And this went all the way up to the very top. And Mrs. Dum Dum <laughs> writes back and says, absolutely not, no way. And I got mad because the, the unfairness, and I was, now this was a different level of rebelling. I mean, I'd been mentally just did not belong since I was 14 years old. But the the condition, this is all I knew. This is the only world I knew. I had no concept of what the outside was like, except through the lens I had been taught to see it. So even when I'm out there on the streets begging and I'm interacting with people, the, the belief system is continually being re- reinforced through everything that I see because the world is being framed through a particular lens. So even as someone in my young 20s who technically should have been an adult, I still very much was in some ways like a child. 
uh, or or a young teen in in my understanding of the world and just life and people. And so at that time, they were opening it up where you could actually make decisions on where you wanted to go. And it was shortly after I was told no on that, and not because of that, for many other reasons, is what got me to Africa. Because I, at that time, made a decision I wanted to get as far away from them as was possible to get and maybe actually do some good in the world. The the things that we lied and said we were doing to convince people to give us money, well, maybe in Africa we were actually doing them and I could not waste my life and hate my life and hate myself because I was afraid. I was afraid of what would happen to me if I actually left because all my life I'd been taught that God was going to basically strike me dead. I was going to end up, you know, as a prostitute, as the only way to support myself. And that, you know, all they did, they would tell us horror stories of, of things that had happened to people and anything bad that happened to somebody who did left, leave, we called them backsliders. They, that was proof that God was judging them. If anything good happened to them, that was the devil just, you know, tricking them. It's, it's catch-22. You can't win, right? And so I was really scared. But I thought, well, if I go to Africa, which is as far away from leadership as was possible to get, maybe I could actually do something good and just maybe not hate life. But Africa turned out, in the cult, turned out to be exactly the same as everywhere else. But that's what prompted me to go to Africa. And I, I started, I had a lot more time on my hands once I got out of the United States and got to Kenya. And so I started writing on the sly, um, a trying to rebuild one of the stories that I sort of at that time vaguely remembered writing when I was 14. I didn't ever get very far into it. And, and then that was the end of that. You know, I ended up moving to Equatorial Guinea, had kids, became a mom. And life was, and then shortly after that, left the coal and just life was just one constant, just one long constant struggle. And this is kind of where the story picks up when I, when I tell it in events is I, I talk about how when we finally did get to the United States, like we didn't have any education, no social circle, no credit history, no, none of the things that anybody who's grown up in even, you know, poor, lower middle class, not poverty, but lower middle class, whatever, in the United States could expect to know or to count on. It was like we were foreigners who spoke English thrown into a foreign country, uh, into the United States, and just landed here and just sort of had to figure it out. And it took forever for my then-husband to find a job, and only one of us could afford to go to work because it would have cost more to put the kids, we had two babies at that time, to put into um, daycare than I could have earned at any of the entry-level jobs that I would have qualified for. So I stayed home, and he went to work. And he's kind of like me, where he's very self-taught, and but his field was coding. So while he, and he, I think at the time, like the job he found started him at $13 an hour, which I don't know what that is in inflation dollars, but it wasn't very much then either. And that's what we lived on. And so to support ourselves, to help support, I'd go out 
on weekends while he was home with the kids and I would go to garage sales and I would look for things that I could, that I felt had resale value that I could turn around and sell on eBay. And like right now, that's just how it's done. But back then, not very many people were doing it. So I quickly learned that if you, that books were one of those things you could buy for like, buy a whole box of books for $5 and turn around and sell them individually for $5. You know, it's not a lot of money, but incrementally it made a difference. And so I sort of turned to books as a way to supplement our income. And every once in a while I would read them, but mostly what I was reading at first was how to exist in life books. You know, that's how I learned about, you know, just everything, you know, marketing and, and, uh, stock, the stock market and business, how businesses work and how to set up a corporation and what corporations are for and all these different types of things and, and understanding the structures behind society. And I learned about just business. It's just these, these real life books that I read so many of them. I finally burnt myself out and I couldn't even open another single one anymore. And so I started thinking about fiction. And up until that time, because novels were not allowed in the cult, and you get in such bad trouble if they caught you with one. Um, until I went to Africa, to Equatorial Guinea specifically, um, I, I hadn't read hardly, since since I was in sixth grade, I maybe read like two novels in all those years in between, and that's because I was somewhere where I could sneak one. And so when we were in Equatorial Guinea, um, the the people, the, the pilots and engineers that worked for the oil companies were like our friends. We, we made friends with several of them. And like, we were the only young foreign people in the country. Like there were a few foreigners who were from Spain or France or whatever, but they were all older than us. So we were the, we were just like, <laughs> we were an anomaly really in Equatorial Guinea. No, nothing else like us existed there. And so they, I guess they kind of felt sorry for us, but anyway, they they would often leave us with books that they had brought um, on their flights over. So like most of them, most of those books would be thrillers or adventure stories because all of these engineers and pilots were men. And that that's kind of the type of books that they were into reading. So a few science fiction. So maybe while I was in Equatorial Guinea, I maybe read like 10 or 11 novels in the time that I was there. And um, then I got to the United States and I'm doing all this garage sale stuff. And I don't know authors. Like, I, I, I didn't know what was popular or what people were reading. I didn't have any concept of genre. I just knew that most of the novels I read were exciting. And so what I would really look for were collections. So it was a lot easier to sell 10 John Sanford books, 10 Irish Johansson books, than it was to sell them off individually if you had a collection. So that's mostly what I was looking for was like hardback books that were multiples from the same author. And uh, eventually I would like read a few of them. So like I knew Stephen King's name from movies and stuff, but I hadn't ever read any of his books. Like I, I saw the Firestarter when I was young. It was one of the books that they would, the movies that they allowed us to see um, because, you know, it could be reframed as, you know, us fighting the Antichrist forces, the government, whatever, with our supernatural powers that God was going to bestow on us. <laughs> so, other other long story, but Lauren talks about it in her book. So if you've read that, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, so 
I, I read a few more books along the way through the process of buying that stuff that I was going to resell. I couldn't read Stephen King, though. It was just too intense for me. He's an amazing man, amazing writer. I love him, but he's terrifies me that his writings do. So anyway, I while I was there doing garage sales, I finally saw this title that I recognized, and it was called The Holcroft Covenant. And the only reason I recognized it is because way back when, when I was in that miserable situation where I had started writing stories for the first time, writing them down, a friend of mine told me about this movie called The Holcroft Covenant, which was a spy movie, and they said it was great, but I was in trouble at the time, so I wasn't allowed to see it. So here's this title that I recognized, and I was told it was amazing. So I read, I got the book, didn't have a cover, like just didn't have a jacket or anything. It was just in this box of books and like paid 50 cents for it or whatever. And it was the first espionage story that I had ever read. And it blew my mind. Like I couldn't even fathom that it was possible for one mind to create the complexity that existed in this story. I was blown away. Like it just was like somebody had opened a portal to another world to me, something that I did not even know was possible. So from that point on, anytime I was at a garage sale, if I saw the name Robert Ludlum, then now I knew an author. I was looking for more of this, this thing that I read, which I'm really glad I never saw the movie because later I saw it and it was just so bad. It was just awful. And if I had seen that movie, I never would have picked up the book. But because I hadn't seen it, the thing about inciting incidents, you just never know. Because I hadn't seen it, I picked up this book, which is what led me to Robert Ludlum. And that's how I discovered Jason Bourne. And this was before the Matt Damon movies or anything like that. I just fell in love with Jason Bourne. I fell so hard in love with this character. And I only had the one book. And I fell so hard in love with him that I went to Half Price Books and spent eight whole dollars, which for me was a fortune, to be able to buy the next book in series and, and follow it. That's how much I, is the, the probably, honestly, the first book I ever bought <laughs> was a Jason Bourne book because like in a store, right? Everything else I got, it was like secondhand or, you know, given to me or whatever. I couldn't afford books. And I was sitting there reading, I forget which one in the series it was, but it's one where it takes place, part of the story takes place in Macau. And I'd never personally been to Macau but I had a lot of friends in Japan who had been there and, you know, who'd been to Taiwan and Hong Kong and, and all of that. So I was well aware of what Macau was and what it was like and whatever from, you know, just not really being there, but being in close contact with people who were and just, you know, kids tell their stories and whatever. So when I was sitting there reading this book, I was so overwhelmed by everything that was in it. And I had this moment where I just paused and I was like, I wish, I wish I could do this. 
I wish I could make people feel what I feel when, when I read. And then I was like, wait a minute. I've lived further off the map than any of the places this man is writing about in his stories. And I always wanted to write, and they wouldn't let me. So I'm going to write a book. I'm going to do this. And that is how The Informationist was written. So about, about a third of the way through your, your story, I was thinking of you telling stories to the other kids in the cult and thinking, how cool that must have been to be able to sit there and listen. And then I realized, oh, that's exactly what we're all doing right now. We're listening, <laughs> sitting and listening to you tell us a story. <laughs> that is the chronological order of how I started writing fiction. It took me three years to write The Informationist. I did not know how to write. I had to learn that. And there's another story of how that happened the learning process, but I think we've gone so far over already for this one. I might have to save that for another day. But the long and short of it is that was the current inciting incident was that moment where I was like, I wish that I could do this. But the true inciting incident was way back when I was 12. And the chain of events that that set in motion, that set up the moment of, I always wanted to write and they wouldn't let me. And I wrote not to get published, but to finish a book because that I felt at the time was the biggest finger I could raise <laughs> in rebellion to prove them wrong. And now, hilariously, after having been told, no, don't you dare, I went and did, and even the worst thing I've ever written is better than the best spirit story they ever tried to put out. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought about it. You know, one of the things that we would get in such bad trouble for all the time, like it wasn't completely unacceptable, was daydreaming. Daydreaming was an absolute, absolute no-no. And, but that's what writing fiction is, is it's based off of pure daydreaming. Like, that's how these worlds come into be, is through the mind being free to roam and imagination. And I remember quipping to some of my friends way, way back at the beginning, I think it was like shortly before The Innocent published or right around that time. And I was like, you think maybe if they realized how lucrative daydreaming could be, they might have been a little more accepting of it (laughs) because it's kind of an inside joke because, you know, we were always broke. We were so dirt poor and we were always out on the street begging so much freaking work that even my own income, which is, I mean, I don't, right now I really don't make very much money, but it still could have funded Even now, with as little money as I make, I still could have kept a a home running on this, and nobody would have had to go out in the streets begging. 
because most of our, you know, we, we got so much stuff donated to us. So we really just needed the money for rent and, you know, electricity and things that you couldn't beg somebody to give you. And I'm like, just, just this alone would have been enough to keep kids off the street, but they're just so short sighted. (laughs) Like the thing you did not allow me to do is what gave me opportunity. So F you, you dum dum. Anyway, that's my story. <laughs> and that was the inciting incident for how Taylor became a writer, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. All right, that's a great story. I'm glad I had the opportunity to listen to you as an oral storyteller. That was kind of fun. And uh, for a longer period of time, because we get these little short stories all the time in the, uh, in the chit-chat. But uh, this, this was much longer and much more enjoyable. So thank you for that. I want to put this out here before we close. If you're still listening, I'm going to put this out here as an ask me anything. There's so much to this story that I could not include because I just had to like touch on the highlights. To me, the stuff I'm talking about is just like, yeah, and this is a shirt and these are pants and you put them on and then you put your shoes on and you go outside. Like that's how normal and everyday it was for me that I'm not even aware of the level of bizarreness that is reaching people's ears as I tell these stories. So what I'm opening up here is an ask me anything. You are welcome to ask me anything about the cult, anything to go into more depth about it, to answer specific questions about specific things that I might've touched on anything and related to that. And if I get enough of those to do a separate podcast at some point, I will, or I will answer them in writing. If you take the time to ask me a question, I may, I don't know, I'll find some way possibly to answer it before we ever record it. All I know is I've just kind of opened this can of worms and went, surprise. And there's got to be a bazillion questions out there going, wait, what? So (laughs) it feels, it feels wrong to just like, okay, and that's it. Nevermore, you know? So I'm just putting it out there that if you have more questions, you're like, could you just tell us more about X? That you're welcome to send that to me and I will try and do that for you. And uh, we'll just see how much fun we can have with it. So, and what, what email address should they use? Or okay, so, how, how could they do this? <laughs> yes. So there's several ways to reach me. Um, the, the, the best, easiest for me is if you write to contact at taylorstevensbooks.com. Email is so much easier for me to answer, but you can also post questions in the Facebook group. I might not answer them in depth there, but I'll thank you for them and add them to my collection of things to answer. And likewise for Patreon, you can drop a question onto the post of wherever this goes. I might not answer it in depth there, but it lets me know and then it'll build the the list. And who knows, maybe nobody's got questions and that's okay too. Um, So yes, that is how you contact me. All right. Thank you. And so that is our show for this week. Thank you guys for listening. Thank you, Taylor, for that story. And we will be back again next Tuesday. Thank you for being here, guys. See you next week.